So, I have a, a preamble of sorts. Well, actually, I have a preamble before a preamble that I want to talk about in terms of Daniel. And it's something I've been meaning to say regarding Daniel uh, for a few we weeks, a couple months now, and I keep forgetting to say it, so I finally wrote it down. So it's going to get said this morning. There's something significant about Daniel that we often miss uh, when we go through the book or we talk about him, which is that through much of his ministry, uh, in fact, through the passage that we're going to be talking about today, his vision, Daniel was not a young man. He was an older man. In fact, uh, through the course of his ministry, uh, his ministry to, to the Persians, to, to Darius and Cyrus, he was well into his 80s uh, and still uh, ministering, administering the, the kingdom and ministering uh, to, to the kings. At the time of this particular vision, it's hard to know. We don't know exactly when he was born. We have a rough idea. He was probably somewhere in his late 60s, possibly early 70s. It's hard to say, but somewhere in that uh, area uh, during the passage we're going to look at here. And I think that's worth uh, drawing out and taking uh, a closer look at because it doesn't happen very often in the Bible. There's not many people, uh, older folks by our definition of the term, in the Bible ministering or doing anything of note. The reason for that is because they're mostly passed away. People just didn't live very long back then. It, it wasn't uh, uh, a very common thing. Now, of course, you would have your outliers, even as you do today, people who would live, uh, by our standards, long and healthy lives. I don't know why Jerry's laughing at this point. <laughs> You're not an outlier. <laughs> but the point being that back then, you, you could still live to be 80, 90 years old. It, um, it just was much, uh, much less common. But th the reason I draw that out is that there is no example or passage uh, in the Bible of God saying to someone, uh, in the sense of the way we think of retirement, that your work is done, that you're finished, you know, live out the rest of your days in, in comfort, and, and you're, you know, basically you're, you're just here to live out the rest of your days, but your work, you're, you're finished, you're done. There is no such, yeah, that's right, I'm talking to you, Bill. There's, there is no such passage uh, in the Bible that I'm aware of. In fact, Psalm 92 has this uh, to say, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age, and they are ever full of sap and green, which is to say they are always young on the inside, and they still bear fruit into their old age. Uh, in my translation, I would say they are full of sass, because that's the way the old people in this church treat me. But at any rate, that's uh, neither here nor there. But the, the point being... Uh, which I think is clear that there, there's, I think this, it's worth drawing out and looking at th in the sense that you're really, no matter how young you are, how old you are, if you're drawing breath and here on this earth, you have a point for being here. God's not finished with you yet. This came home to me directly and personally uh, with an experience I had a, a couple weeks ago with my grandmother, uh, my grandmother uh, who's 99 years old and still relatively with it, some early onset dementia, but uh, anyway, she'll, she got it in her head that she wanted to go visit a fellow across the parking lot. There's an assisted living center across the parking lot, and there's a fellow by the name of Paul who lives there. Paul used to own the apartment building that she used to live in when she was a young lass of 85 or 86. Uh, so, and they got to know each other and, and um, became acquaintances of, of sorts. So she found out that Paul was living across the parking lot, and she wanted to go visit him. Now, Paul is 95 which my grandma's older than Paul, but he's no spring chicken. Uh, so I, I didn't really know what to expect, but I, I bundled grandma off in the wheelchair, and we went. Uh, I called ahead, and I told Paul we were coming to visit. 
and we went to the assisted living center to visit. And it was really interesting to me because um, from the beginning, I could tell that, it, first of all, it, w it meant something to Paul that my grandmother was coming to visit him. And two, that he really wanted to make it kind of a yeah, sort of a special time. Like he really wanted to sort of minister to my grandma in, in essence. And so, you know, I thought maybe they'd just exchange a few sentences and, and reminisce about a couple of stories and then we'd be going home. But, uh, you know, Paul said, why don't you guys come up to my apartment? And we'll and Paul, for ni a 95-year-old man, is still walking around. He has a walker, but he's quite with it. And so we went up to his apartment, and he had laid out, and this was so cute, <laughs> but he had laid out uh, some chocolate bars and some Pepsis, uh, which uh, he gleaned that perhaps my grandmother would be keen on, uh, which she was. She doesn't get a lot of chocolate bars or Pepsis in the facility she's at. And I, I partook myself. I wasn't uh, proud. Um, I figured that was a healthy lunch as far as I was concerned. Uh, but he, he had, my point being, he had sort of planned out this time uh, with my grandmother, and they, they talked and shared stories, and he was very gracious to her. My grandmother sometimes forgets that she's had conversations 30 seconds ago, and she'll repeat them. And Paul was, uh, you know, he obviously knew that that was going on, but he would, he graciously, he was very gracious. And one of the interesting things was is that uh, he, he had such a, um, I really felt like he was ministering to my grandmother. And when I looked around uh, his apartment, I realized that it was like a seminary professor lived there. I mean, it, you, you couldn't throw a stone without hitting a Bible. And there were all these Bible study books and, and theological books and all these things. And, and I didn't know this, but it turns out he was a faithful Christian. And I asked him about that. And he's like, oh, yes, they have church here every Wednesday night in the facility. And I go to it. And, and I thought for a second he was going to invite my grandmother <laughs> to church, which would have made my day. I was like, do it, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> uh, but he didn't. Um, but, uh, but he's actually going to go back and visit her uh, here in a, in a week or two. Anyway, all this, my point being, I mean, these are people who are in their 90s, late 90s, and there's, God is still, we can still minister to one another and still uh, be uh, the hands and feet of Christ for one another. There isn't a cutting off point for that. And to me, that, 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 you know, that, that experience of seeing that and then, uh, uh, you know, reminding myself of how old Daniel really became through the course of his ministry, um, I think is something worth mentioning. So, so that's the preamble, which has nothing to do with the amble. This next passage we're getting to, which is uh, Daniel chapter 7, by the way, if any of you want to uh, look at uh, this as we go through, has to do with a dream. We're, we're kind of done with the narrative stories of Daniel, and we've moved into the dreams and visions. Just out of curiosity, and um, it'll be clear this is not a right or wrong answer uh, question, but how many of you feel like God sometimes speaks to you through dreams or visions or both? I'd say that was roughly about half. I, 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 I would include myself in that number. Um, so visions and dreams are part of the Christian faith. I mean, it's part of the biblical narrative to have visions or for God to speak to people in dreams. So they are something that we should acknowledge and accept as gifts from God in our community. And sometimes people do have very powerful experiences through a, through a, a dream or a vision. Uh, and sometimes that's just for them to have and to experience and for that uh, message. And sometimes it's for the whole community. And so while we're getting into the, this, this, liter this aspect of the Bible, I do want to say quite openly, uh, I am open as a pastor. If you feel like you've had a vision from the Lord in a dream or, or in any capacity, you know, if you're praying and you get this image or vision, 
and you feel like it's for your community, uh, by all means, come and talk to me about it. I've seen uh, that happen, and I've seen good things happen from it. Does that make sense? And God does speak to me through dreams, uh, not like every night or even every month, and sometimes not for years at a time, but I've had a few dreams in my life that I lean on heavily, and where I woke up and I knew that God had a message, that that was God, and that I needed to pay attention. So uh, visions and dreams, I think, are, are part, and some people, by the way, don't, it's, it's not a necessity of, of faith or anything like that. People go their whole lives, and they feel like God doesn't speak to them in that way, not through their dreams, their visions, you know, they just don't, it's just not how God speaks to them, and that's fine, too. There's nothing unbiblical about that, or you're not, you're, you're not somehow distant from God in that. It's just the full body of Christ at work there. So this is a dream and a, and a vision uh, of Daniel. And we'll go ahead and uh, show that first slide. Oh, thanks, Orion. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. And he wrote down the substance of his dream. Just a piece of good advice, by the way. If you have dreams like that where you feel like God is speaking to you, it is a good thing to get up and, and record it and, and try to remember it in detail. I think that's, that's uh, a wise uh, model that Daniel gives us here because our memories tend to play tricks on us uh, over time. So he wrote down uh, the substance of, of this dream. Now, uh, we have gone back in time. I have to watch the clock here. <laughs> I'm a little careful. This is, um, we've got, oh, go back to that first one. Thanks, Ryan. We've actually gone back in time. So if you remember uh, Daniel, uh, at the end of the last story in the book of Daniel, uh, Darius was the, uh, the king. It was the Persian Empire had taken over and uh, Daniel was serving uh, Darius, the king of Persia. So we've gone back in time to when Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, uh, was king, and Daniel was serving, uh, he wasn't really serving Belshazzar, but he was administrator in the Babylonian empire under Belshazzar. And so this is when Daniel had his dream. Now, if we, if we reflect back to the time, may, some of you may not remember, some of you weren't here, but when we talked about Belshazzar, this was, a very discouraging time for Daniel. It had to have been a discouraging time for Daniel. God had done a lot of amazing things with Daniel, done a lot of amazing things in his life, but the Babylonian people were not not even close to convinced that the Jewish God was God. They, they were not, they were sticking with their, their idols, as it were, with their mythologies. Uh, they weren't interested in what Daniel uh, had to, to teach them about God, and so it was probably a very discouraging time. You know, he had successfully reached Nebuchadnezzar, but nothing had come of that in terms of, of Babylon as a whole. And then this other king, Belshazzar, comes along who was cruel and, and uh, capricious. And it seemed like, every, you know, Daniel must have been thinking to himself, why, you know, why did I do all this? What, why did I put my life on the line? Why did I risk my life? What's, what point does my life have? I mean, what am I, you know, how many, I'm sure some of us sometimes have that question. Am I really doing any good here? Am I doing anything of note, of substance? It, it, should I... You know, is this helpful to anybody? And this is when Daniel gets this dream. <coughs> so we're going to get into these images here, and the, the very next uh, passage is going to show these images. Now, in apocalyptic literature, which is what this is, it's, as I said, it's notoriously hard to interpret. It often contains bizarre imagery, sometimes unsettling imagery. And historically, it's the, the parts of the Bible that are most susceptible to abuse. In the book of Revelation, uh, the book of Daniel, um, uh, I'm spacing here, uh, parts of Ezekiel. Uh, these, because they're mysterious and because they don't, they're not always clear as to what exactly is going on, they lend themselves to people who are looking for power in the church or in cults or these sorts of things 
to insert themselves into the narrative in ways that are not healthy. And so apocalyptic literature, revelatory literature, are often used uh, in abusive ways. So we sometimes, uh, as Christians, we get even a little af afraid of these scriptures. Like, you know, what, if we don't entirely know what something means, we should, as Christians, be entirely comfortable saying we don't entirely know what this means. And then it ceases to be as scary, and it, we, c we can embrace that. And a lot of this, I'm not entirely certain what it means. And I'm quite okay with that. That doesn't trouble me. Hopefully it won't trouble you. It's supposed to be mysterious and somewhat opaque. And it's doubly mysterious and doubly alien to us because these are images that aren't part of our culture. So, for example, uh, someone 300 years from now listening to my sermons, I have no idea why they would be, but uh, imagine some poor soul had to. Uh, and I was using imagery from, say, movies of our time. Uh, you know, if I mentioned, like, the red pill and the blue pill, uh, you know, what's that from? Matrix. Thank you, Michael. I knew I could depend on you. Uh, you know, all these things that people might be like, what the heck is he talking about? This is just bizarre. It's similar to that. I mean, they're basically using uh, Matrix-esque uh, imagery from the Babylonian Empire of the 6th century AD uh, to, to, to make their points. Um. Okay. Let's uh, go to that first one. That's the first one? Did I skip a... Wait a minute here. Sorry about that. I, I must have deleted a slide by accident. <coughs> Excuse me while I read this to you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I meant to have that up there. Okay, I'll just, I'll just read this. Uh, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. He wrote down the sums of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. Okay, so I, I skipped the beginning part. So I'm going to repeat that just to put that. So in his vision at night, I looked, and there before me, Daniel, were f the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So you imagine a great sea, uh, these winds being churned up from heaven, and out of the sea coming these four uh, large and ominous uh, beasts. That's the image that's given it. Now, the sea in the ancient Near East was, uh, stood for primordial chaos. So just sort of, it's the stuff out of which creation was made. In Babylonian mythology, uh, the sea was just uh, this uh, sort of, you can think of sort of like gray matter type stuff, which the gods took and formed uh, creation out of. In Hebrew, uh, the thought became, or uh, the sea came to represent chaos and evil uh, as a result of sin. So they, they kind of, they're somewhat similar related, but not the same thing. So in Hebrew, the, the sea became uh, uh, chaos, evil, um, chaotic uh, a living. Uh, that's the result of sin. So what we see in the passage that I was supposed to have up there is God sort of churning up the chaos. You know, the winds of heaven from the four quarter winds of heaven being a uh, way of expressing God's action, sort of churning up the chaos and the evil. And these beasts are created. These beasts come out of out of uh, out of the sea. So even from the beginning, you have a sense of God's sovereignty. I think that's an important thing in, in Hebrew thought and in, in, in um, yeah, those of us who follow Christ, even the very darkest things, the things that are most uh, abhorrent to us, which <coughs> are also abhorrent to God, behind them all is, is this, I mean, God has, has his purposes which he's working out from the beginning. And the, you know, the winds of heaven, if you will, are, are moving all the time behind the scenes such that God's purposes will be worked out. And God's purposes are, of course, of purposes of grace and redemption and forgiveness. And it's behind all things. 
So let's look at these beasts, uh, th this image, that th this uh, vision that Daniel's having. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. Well, that's bizarre now, isn't it? <laughs> I dare you to preach on that someday. <laughs> but I will. I will dare. So, uh, st stay I know this, is, this gets pretty egg-heady, and I hope you stick with me through this because there is, there, there is a point to all this other than just, hey, let's learn about ancient Near Eastern mythology. But we can't get through this without having some sense of what it is and what it means. So, um, beasts in, in ancient usually stand for a nation. Uh, if you have a beast, it usually stands for some nation or other. That's, that's the symbolism there. There's four, uh, four beasts uh, that come out of the sea here, so we're looking for four nations. Now, the first, uh, being like a lion, had the wings of an eagle. Its wings are torn off, and, uh, and at the same time, it was lifted from the ground, and it became a human being. Now, if you've been paying attention, if you've been following along uh, in the book of Daniel carefully, this should remind you of somebody. Please let it remind you of somebody. <laughs> and you may not, you may not, it might not come to mind readily. I've been looking at this all week. So, um, if you remember, uh, Daniel ministered to a king. Which king was that? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in the end? He became like an animal on the ground, right? In fact, it said he ate of the dust of the dirt. He, he was essentially made, in, for what purpose? Humble. To humble him. And was he humbled, ultimately? And then he became like a human being, right? And, and Hebrew thought and belief system, I mean, to be, a perfect, to be a whole human being means to acknowledge that God is God. I mean, it, there's a sense there, when it says, uh, stood on two feet like human beings, you have this notion of Nebuchadnezzar standing up. Uh, from the dirt. Nebuchadnezzar was, was insane for a while in essence. And raising up, being given the mind of a human being and being made whole. A kind of shalom that comes into play here. So th this is probably Babylon. And this makes sense too. Uh, because, now <laughs> bear with me, Daniel chapter 2 through D Daniel chapter 7 is unique because, does anybody remember why Daniel chapter 2 chapter 7 is unique? This was written in a different language, Aramaic. Chapter 1 of Daniel is in Hebrew. Chapter 8 and following is in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 is in Aramaic. So this chapter 7, the chapter we're reading right now, is the very end of the Aramaic section. The Aramaic section that starts in chapter 2 starts with a vision of a statue that has four parts that stands for four different nations. So these are bookends. Okay, If you read chapter 2 and chapter 7, you're reading the bookends of a very specific part of Daniel, and they both have to do with four nations. And so what we're looking for now is, are these the same four nations? Spoiler alert, yes, they are. <laughs> uh, at least in as much as I uh, humbly have tried to interpret this, uh, these are the same four nations. So yes, this is Babylon, and that's, I believe that's a description of Nebuchadnezzar who was humbled and then lifted up. Okay? Are you following me so far? Okay. Next one. Oh, and this is a helpful map of the Babylonian Empire of which Nebuchadnezzar was king. Which, beast number one. Let's go on. And before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. A pretty uh, a bloody image, to be sure. Now, if we follow the trajectory of Babylon, what comes after Babylon? What empire came after the Babylonian Empire? Persians, Persians right. This would be Persia. 
So, is there a reason why we might presume this is, is Persia? Well, yes, there are two reasons why we might think this is Persia. One is uh, it was raised up on one of its sides, which is kind of unusual imagery. Why is the bear raised up on its sides? Well, some people call the Persian Empire the Medo-Persian Empire because it was, uh, it was uh, half made of Medes, half of Persians. The Persian Empire was always much, it was kind of a conglomerate empire, but the Persian part was much stronger and more powerful. Therefore, it's like an animal raised up on its side. Does that make sense? It's sort of one side being more powerful. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Well, it's common knowledge. Uh, it wasn't to me before I researched this, but would have been common knowledge to people back then that in order for the Persian Empire to become the Persian Empire, it had to destroy three, three other empires, the Medes, the Lystrias, and, um, <laughs> and a third one. Oh, uh, Babylon, of course. So the Persian Empire became the Persian Empire by destroying three other empires. That's the th that would make sense. That would be the three ribs in its mouth. So this is what we have, the second beast, uh, the, the Persian Empire. And there's a map here, if you show it for me there, Ryan. A bigger empire, a stronger empire, although, well, okay, I'm not going to go there. Let's go to the next one here. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. On its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Any guesses? Greece, Alexander. Alexander the Great, the, the Greek Empire. Now, the leopard was, in common thought that, that time, the fastest of the, of the animals, the fastest beast ever. And in a time before cars, that made it the fastest thing ever. And not only that, they gave it four wings. What's faster than a leopard? A leopard with four wings. It's a great <laughs> joke. That's uh, for your party people there. Um, and the significance of that is that, I mean, the amazing thing about Alexander the Great, not just that he conquered uh, uh, all of every, uh, uh, all the Persian Empire and more besides, but he did it in seven years. I mean, he died when he was 32, and he did it at, at lightning speed. I mean, it was nothing, that's why he's, I presume, is why he's imaged uh, in this fashion. Um, and was given authority to rule. And, of course, uh, the Greek Empire, uh, uh, Alexander the Great uh, ruled for, well, actually, Alexander the Great ruled for only a very short time as he died uh, shortly thereafter. So these are, uh, that's, that's the third beast, rather. And here we have the Greek Empire, and as you can see, it's even bigger than the Persian Empire. So the empires are growing in, in, in power and size. Okay, so I want to make sure I didn't skip anything here. And now we get to the fourth beast, which, of course, is... Rome. Fourth beast is Rome. What was that? I, I missed it. America. <laughs> Skipping ahead. Actually, it's Russia. Uh, no. Um, there is actually a whole book written uh, about uh, this that, that does put all this in mind. The, the, the beast I'm about to discuss is actually Russia. This is the danger of these kinds of things that we can insert ourselves into it. Uh, I can't remember the name of the book. It was really popular in the 70s. Everything crazy was popular in the 70s. <laughs> was that what it was? I don't think. It, was that? Maybe, maybe it was Late Great Planet Earth. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so here's the fourth beast. Terrifying, frightening, and very powerful. So more so than all the others. We're getting into the superlatives here. Had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts. And it had ten horns. So, Rome, the final beast, and most terrifying of all. It appears to be uncontrolled or uncontrollable, a mad dog of a nation that made the three that came before it look, by comparison, weak 
and insubstantial. And it was in, in Daniel's vision, Rome is, is, is terrifying. And indeed, Rome was terrifying if you were, if you were trying to stand against Rome. So let's just uh, put the map up there of the Roman Empire. And as you can see, we have to even draw back, you know, like a, like a telescope. We have to get farther back just to see the scope of the Roman Empire. And in some ways, you know, maybe I'm pushing a little bit here, but just follow me. In some ways, the Roman Empire never really died. I mean, in a way, we're still living in the Roman Empire in, in a very real way. The, 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 the aspects of the Roman Empire, many of them, well, for example, like our Senate and, you know, the notion of having a, a republic and all this stuff um, came from Rome. And not only that, but, you know, as we're taught, in, in history, the, the pagan uh, tribes and empires eventually conquered Rome, but in truth, it was really Rome that conquered them because when they took over the Roman Empire, they adopted Roman ways of being, Roman ways of living more so than the other way around. Does that make sense? Uh, well, Christianity is probably one of the prime examples. The, by the time the Roman Empire dissolved, it was a Christian empire, and when the pagans finally conquered it and took over, Europe didn't become pagan, it became Christian, and so on and so forth. So, in many ways, the Roman Empire sort of gradually dissolved into what we would now call Europe and Eastern Europe and Russia. And in many ways, those cultures spread out and conquered uh, in, in various ways, sometimes through cultural sometimes uh, violently and sometimes more subtly, but essentially conquered the world. In a way, that was Rome. Uh, it, maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but I think it, it does have some truth to it. So, uh, so this is the final, final beast here in, in, in uh, Daniel's vision. Thank you for that, Jason. <laughs> Pressing into my ignorance, I uh, take that note. I don't know. I have a theory. Uh, I've read uh, this last week. I nobody knows, uh, but there are many theories, and some of which you might find more compelling than others. I actually changed my mind three times in the course of doing this sermon while being sick, uh, trying to figure out exactly how to preach through this because I'm not entirely certain. I have a theory which I'm going to share, but it, as I said earlier, it's not the uh, it's not the core of the teaching. Does that make sense? But I think if we don't yeah if we don't even touch upon this, it's just like well what the heck. Uh, horns usually designate th this. I I can say with certainty that most scholars agree kind of thing that horns designate leaders. Uh, horns designate kings, rulers, or leaders of a certain type. Um, so that's usually uh, what we would have. Let's let's keep reading and and we'll we'll see here. Um, and Daniel had the same question. <laughs> While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Confused yet? Okay, so the beast had ten horns, but three of the horns basically fell off, and, and a smaller horn came up underneath it, and it was a, a, a prideful, idolatrous, arrogant, this sort of thing. All right, let's keep reading, and I'll come back. Um, actually, no. Uh, jump back one there, Ryan. I'll, I'll finish that off because otherwise we'll get lost here. So, if horns are leaders, right? And if we're right about the fourth beast being the Roman Empire, then we're looking for uh, ten horns, and then the eleventh one kind of comes and take and pushes three aside, and becomes emperor. Now, this gets really interesting, and this is where my uh, I, I, my agnosticism is going to come to play here because I can't. I'm not going to state this as biblical truth. But this is what I've, in my reading of various scholars and, and just uh, thinking about this moment, came to. So, if you, ten, leader, ten emperors, ten kings of Rome, right? If you count from the very first king of Rome, and that would be, by my reckoning, would be, have you heard of Sola? 
S-U-L-L-A. He was not technically the first emperor of Rome, but he was the first dictator. He's the one who essentially abolished the, the, the power of the Senate and set himself up to be the, uh, fully in charge of all of Rome, militarily and economically and in all ways. So in essence, Sulla would be the very first king of Rome, first horn, if you will, of Rome. And then it's very easy to follow the secession. So you c if you count 10, you know, one after the other, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you count uh, 10 emperors, then the 11th is going to be Vespasian. Now, I don't know if that has any significance to any of you, but when I saw that, that had immediate significance to me um, because Vespasian is the one who, in essence, destroyed the Jewish people, destroyed Israel, destroyed the Jewish culture. Um, it was his son, Titus, who did the actual dirty work on his command. Um, and, he, and it was Vespasian who uh, submitted the royal edict that any, any uh, descendant of David, any descendant of David, I don't mean a direct descendant, anyone who is even remotely related to David would be put to the sword and killed. And they, they succeeded in scattering the Jewish people all throughout, uh, all throughout the world, in essence, and destroyed Israel as, as it was known. That was Vespasian. He's the 11th emperor. Now, what's even more interesting, this is where my, my, my ears perked up, as it were. Have you heard of the year of the four emperors? That was AD 69. The temple was destroyed in 70. The year of the four emperors is the year before the temple was destroyed. Vespasian basically uh, won the emperorship basically by, um, there, were, there were four of them, three, three other emperors, three small horns, who Vespasian defeated, in essence, to become the emperor. Uh, it's a bit more complicated than that. I'm simplifying for time's sake, but that's, that is the essence of what happened. So that's, that matches all all the horns, <laughs> uh, which would be, which, you know, you can read other scholars who will have different theories and make, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, place it a couple hundred years earlier, Antiochus Epiphanes, etc., etc. But to my way of thinking, this is a prophecy given to Daniel hundreds of years before the fact. Um, and it's a known fact that this was written hundreds of years before Vespasian. That's not even debatable. I mean, it, hundreds of years. That this was a prophecy that said, you know what? There's going to come a time when all of, Ju all of Judaism will be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed uh, and persecuted, but God is still God. And this, is, this, of course, is the point of the sermon. Let's get to the God is still God point. As I looked, so thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So this is, again, this is imagery. This is not what God really looks like. This is using uh, pagan imagery, particularly of a king, a king of immense power, an emperor of immense power, and a court is being held. Uh, a judgment's being given. Let's keep going. Then I continued to watch. Because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts, parenthetically, had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So what he saw is, that, is this court, this court of God, and saying, you know what, these, these beasts will not last. And the most terrifying one of all, in fact, will be uh, destroyed. Let's, let's keep reading. And then the, the central passage of the entire book of Daniel. And in my vision at night, I kept looking that... I don't like that translation. It should say, I kept looking. Uh, it's ongoing. In my vision at night, I kept looking, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. 
He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I'm not going to give out prizes for anyone who wants to guess who that is. <laughs> so this is really remarkable. Because this is, again, there's no debate. This book was written hundreds of years before Christ came. This is an image of Christ. As, uh, actually, what, if you, for, for kicks, if you're looking for something fun to do, uh, check out uh, scholarly books or commentaries on this particular passage and watch them try to figure out who this is. <laughs> because it, it is deeply confusing. It's profoundly confusing to scholars uh, of, of every stripe. I mean, if you're trying to... to if you're trying to make this not prophecy. In other, words, in other words, Daniel's referring to someone in the second or third century BC that, that is known. Because this is not something a Jewish person would write ever. Keep in mind this is Daniel, who basically risked his life many times to not worship false gods. And what's he say about this son of man? Someone who looks like a son of man, that's a word for a human being, so like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, that's God. Unambiguously, that's God. So this isn't God. And what's it say? All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Nowhere in the Hebrew Bible does it talk about worshipping anybody but God. Anybody. Not the angels, not no one, ever. The only person in the history of Jewish or Christian, well, obviously Christian thought, who looks like a son of man and is worshipped as God is Jesus. And that's it. And so... What, this, what the vision says is you're going to have four kingdoms that come after me. The fourth kingdom will be destroyed, but there will be one who comes like the Son of Man who will be worshipped by every person, every tribe, every language, and have dominion ultimately over all these things. That's the core of the vision. I think that's pretty remarkable. I've, I find that to be compelling and hard to dismiss. <laughs> um, it's, it's an incredible thing when prophecy like this is so <coughs> nail on the head kind of thing. And by all means, I'm not taking questions right now, I'm, I'm in my zone. <laughs> and by all means, uh, if, you know, if you have any, if you think I'm trying to, uh, you know, do your own research. I, I don't just feel like you have to take my word for any of this. Read people who disagree with me or, or have a different, and, and see if you think their interpretation of that passage holds water. In fact, I should have uh, I, I didn't think to bring it. There, there was a, a book written by a Christian, actually, um, but a, a scholarly work, and he's trying to figure out who the Son of Man could be. Now, you might be saying, why doesn't he just say it's Jesus? Well, you can't do that in the scholarly world. <laughs> you're, you're constrained by these rules of common sense, whereby Daniel couldn't have written a prophetic thing about Jesus hundreds of years before the fact, so it has to be somebody else. And so you're stuck with having to figure out why he would write a passage like that, <coughs> which is really hard to do. Um, I mean, for just one example of many, one of the scholars I read said, well, maybe the Son of Man is, is, a, is a group uh, noun, a, a corporate noun for, for Israel as a whole, for all, for all the Jewish people as a whole. He said, maybe it's just, maybe that's the, and the so they, they're bringing enlightenment to, to the nations as a whole. But of course, that would mean that it would say that the Jewish people were worshipped, which, and he, and he admits that in his work. He's like, well, it doesn't really make much sense, but it's sort of the best I can do. <laughs> anyway. So, I, I would give to you evidence of what we would call real prophecy here in Daniel. And it, it clearly, for Daniel, this is an apex of the, of the as I said, it switches to Hebrew right at, well, not right after this passage, but it very shortly does. 
Okay, I, I can tell I'm running out of time, but I want to finish up this passage, uh, so let's just keep going. So I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Now you might think, Daniel, why is that disturbing to you? Isn't that good news? Well, imagine if, I, if God came to us and said, you know what, um, America is going to be leveled. I mean, I don't know, nuclear holocaust or what have you. Just everybody you know and love, it's just going to be, it's just going to be a horrible, horrible time. But at the end of it, you know, God will come and say, you'd still be troubled. <laughs> you don't want to live through that. You don't want your kids to live through that. Um, so he was troubled. Uh, uh, I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this, and he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. Okay, and then it gets to the interpretations, and let's, I want to skip down to the bottom. The interpretation, by the way, isn't an interpretation, or I would have just used that in my... <laughs> but he, he talks uh, generically about the kings and the leaders. Let's, let's keep going. Keep going. As I watched the, ho the horn, the, the last one we talked about was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. Again, if that is um, Vespasian, that makes sense. He's the one who defeated the Jewish people, ultimately. No other emperor. Until the Ancient of Days came a pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people, the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. It doesn't give a set period of time as to when they come. There's no sense of when that's going to happen. I keep going. Um... Well, let's, let's uh, go to the next one here. I'm sorry, I know I'm skipping a lot, but you guys can read this on your own. So again, he's reiterating this, this vision. The court will sit, his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. And the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people, the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. So that, that's... Um, Is there another passage after that for, the, for Daniel? Yeah, uh, this is the end of the matter. This is Daniel writing. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So I know I skipped over a bunch of things there. We just don't have time to go through it, frankly. Um, but you can read it on your own. Um, but I, I just find that, you know, I find that to be incredibly comforting and stabilizing, I guess for lack of a better word. Uh, the notion that, uh, from the beginning, that behind all the terrible things we see in the world, God's sovereign hand is present. You know, the, the winds that stirred up the, the waters that brought out the beasts. But even so, God's not going to let those beasts stand. And there are plenty of beasts today still. But that at the end of the time, at the end of the day, Jesus will be worshipped. And we, can, we will be together, unified, regardless of language, of tribe, of nationality, of, of whatever you think about the world, that we'll be united in Christ, worshiping together. And that Daniel saw that vision long before, uh, well, long before anybody here was born and uh, ages and ages ago. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be our, our comfort when we have our troubles. And be our comfort when we look out into the world and we see such troubles that they... You know, they threaten sometimes to drive us insane with the things that we see and the horrors that are depicted. But Lord, give us your comfort. Uh, Lord, you will not let it stand forever. You will come with your justice and with your grace. And Lord, when that day comes, may we be found in you, confessing our own sins and confessing our own part to play in all the horrors of the world. 
and casting them upon the cross. Lord, I thank you that this was a, a plan, an idea, uh, a salvation plan that you had, you had in mind eons ago and that you're seeing it through to the very end. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. May we be faithful in turn to you. Amen.